Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode Number Fifty Six, Valina Beauty, Evidence on Fire. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Valina Beatty. Valina is professor of law at West Virginia University College of Law, where she is the director of the West Virginia Innocence Project. This semester, Valina is a visiting professor at the University of Kentucky. Valina teaches criminal procedure and courses on wrongful conviction, prisons, and policing, and her recent scholarship has often focused on forensics. Our podcast today features Valina's recent article, Evidence on Fire, which is co-authored with her colleague Jennifer Oliva and is forthcoming in the North Carolina Law Review. In it, Valina examines the often underappreciated but inherently fascinating world of fire scene evidence. What caused the fire? Where did it start? And oftentimes, most importantly, was it deliberately set? As you might imagine, like many of its forensic cousins, fire scene evidence has its dangers, and it has been criticized for being insufficiently scientific. Perhaps even more interesting, Valina has discovered that courts treat the exact same type of fire evidence differently depending on whether the context is civil or criminal. We'll explore all of these issues and more in the interview. Valina, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. Your article is, of course, about forensic evidence about arson and the cause of fires. Can you tell us a little more about this kind of expert testimony? What do fire experts do or purport to do? And what are the potential pitfalls to their kind of testimony? Sure. Fire experts are tasked with finding the place of origin for a fire and, if they can, the cause of the fire. The difficulty with determining the origin as well as the cause is that it's very dependent on how long the fire has burned. The longer the fire has burned, the more degraded the evidence is. And it ultimately gets to a point after flashover, and flashover means the entire room erupts in flames and is consumed, there comes a point where the evidence is so degraded that it's not possible to determine where the origin of the fire was anymore. How long after flashover that takes, we see that there is a study that said that once it reaches 180 seconds after flashover, fire experts only had a 25% accuracy rate in determining where the origin was. And that's a, that's a short period of time. So courts struggle with how to determine whether these findings of origin and cause are reliable, how effectively degraded evidence can be analyzed, and whether this is evidence that needs to be presented by someone who has a background in science, has a background in physics, is able to know about heat flux and radiation, or whether this is something that's more of a technical field where it can be someone who's a police officer who has had a few weeks of training by other police officers to be able to determine the origin and cause of a fire. 
This evidence becomes particularly important in criminal cases where individuals are charged with arson. And clearly, if you are able to determine the origin and cause of the fire, that could also play a big role in establishing the intent behind the crime. But it's also important evidence for civil cases, so products liability cases, where uh, there could be allegations that a electric blanket or that a lamp misfunctioned and caused this fire. So in many ways, this is forensic evidence that's very different from the usual forensic evidence or forensic identification evidence. Right. So this is different from matching sciences. We saw the PCAST report come out, the President's Commission report that came out and really challenged matching sciences and ways to establish greater reliability for matching sciences. But this is not a matching science. It's really looking at this evidence and whether the evidence there is able to provide provide information that can actually tell you the origin and the cause. So this is a different area. And in fact, there's been greater pushback on fire science because of its history as a area of intuition, that these determinations by fire experts previous to, say, you know, the mid-1990s was really about what's the intuition? What does this dog, this canine accelerant detecting dog, what is the dog able to determine that it's, quote, more an art than a science. So you're coming from a a different area in that sense, where it's really been an area that's captured the imagination of individuals around fire and how do you read the fire. And you would even have experts, I mean, fire experts, that's what they, they would testify as. You'd have these individuals saying that the fire speaks to me and the fire has its own language. But what they were testifying to ultimately when it was scientifically analyzed were myths, were fire myths. So you had this myth, for example, that if there was, you know, a crazed glass, there were fractures in the, in the windows, then that was a sign that it was rapid heating and that an accelerant was used. And if an accelerant is used, then the deduction would be, oh, this is an intentional fire that was set. But now we know that crazed glass actually comes from rapid cooling. So if the firefighters sprayed water on the windows, that would be what would cause the crazed glass. So you have these myths that would be the foundation for what fire experts were testifying to for years. It's interesting. In many ways, it reminds me of something like accident reconstruction, where even if you put aside the myths, you're using what should be scientific principles to deduce some kind of causality or some kind of narrative. But it's very hard to get the traditional statistical rigor that you look for in a lot of other areas of either forensic science or in other forms of scientific evidence. Right. And these myths were really exposed by insurance companies that in the mid-1990s did their own studies where they would set an area on fire. And that's how we even learned about flashover, that over a period of minutes, the fire in a contained space can burn so greatly that the heat is reflected down from the ceiling and the entire room will burst into flames. And before that, the understanding of a fire had been more based on an open fire where it wasn't contained by the ceiling. So there was this idea that if you had markings on the floor, then that meant accelerant had been poured on the floor and, of course, heat rises. So if you have a burned floor at all, you know, that means that the fire was started there, that something was put on the floor to start there. But now we know because of flashover that the entire room becomes engulfed in flames. It has nothing to do with the fire starting on the floor. 
you're absolutely right. I mean, it took studies by insurance companies, by civil litigators, to actually determine how a fire works in a closed setting. Let's talk about that. The main theme of your article is, in many ways, how these civil litigants were able to challenge fire evidence successfully. Tell us about how that happened, and when did that happen, and what was the mechanism? So the advancements in fire science, because we're not talking about traditional matching sciences that were in forensic laboratories, but we're talking about, again, fire investigators who were generally fire marshals, uh, were police officers who received some additional weekend trainings on determining cause and origin of fires. This was what was being used as expert evidence. So in a civil case, you may have a lawsuit. For example, there's a a well-known case out of the force circuit out of Preston County, West Virginia, right near where I live, where the allegation was that electrical blanket or electrical cover had caught on fire and started this fire that led to an elderly woman's death. And the fire marshal came out and said, yes, this is the cause of the fire. But the company, when it was sued, pushed back and actually looked at how that determination was made. So both the qualifications of the fire marshal, but also how did he make that determination that the cause was the electrical blanket rather than something else? And the Fourth Circuit ultimately upheld the case being dismissed by the district court because the fire marshal did not eliminate other potential causes of the fire, didn't look at all the other potential causes. And this really goes to the point of this tunnel vision or cognitive bias or expectation bias that can happen when you have a fire marshal or someone who's connected with, for example, a a police team, but who is investigating this case with a certain idea already in mind. So this idea that the fire was started by the electrical blanket or the idea that this was an intentionally set fire. And having that idea in mind shapes, oh, well, where is the source of the fire? If I've already been told that it was an electrical blanket that started this fire, then I'm going to look for the source of the fire around the electric blanket. And that's exactly what he did. And he did not eliminate the lamp. He did not eliminate other sources. And in the civil case, he was held accountable for that. But what's the legal ground for exclusion here? So obviously this cognitive bias is something that you should bring up on cross-examination and you show that the witness is biased in this way. Was it that there was this standard, this NFPA 921 standard that you talk about in the paper? Was that the ground for exclusion that the expert didn't follow the industry standard, and therefore we're talking something like a Fry standard where we're saying that you're not following generally accepted techniques? I'm really glad you brought that up. Yes, so NFPA 921 is the standard that has been adopted within the community for how a fire investigation should proceed. And there are a number of courts that have said this is the standard that we expect fire experts to abide by when they're investigating and determining the cause and origin of the fire. So it is a standard that has been recognized by a number of courts. Unfortunately, there are other courts that have said um, NFPA 921 is more of a guideline rather than a standard. And if the fire expert did not follow NFPA 921, even though it's 
respected and adopted within the community, that's not sufficient for their findings to be excluded. But the movement is for greater regularity and reliability in how these fire investigations are completed. And the emphasis is on following NFPA 921. So Dalbert challenges have generally been focused on the methodology and how the fire investigation proceeds. And that would be guided by NFPA 921. There has been, however, a recent change of qualifications of fire experts under NFPA 1033. So now we see Daubert challenges based on the qualifications of the expert himself. Previously, there weren't these qualifications that were really expected within the fire science community. But now, as of NFPA 1033 being published, the standard is that these experts have to have a high school level knowledge of chemistry, thermodynamics, explosion dynamics, electricity, fire science, and there's these 16 different areas. So it is another way to increase the reliability of the investigations, but also for the defense to challenge the findings of the fire expert based on his own qualifications. Are you comfortable with using these various standards that are promulgated by presumably an industry association to do the scientific reliability analysis, or are you looking for something different? We discuss in our paper some concerns we have about NFPA 921 and some gaps in the requirements. For example, fire experts are able to speak with eyewitnesses before going to the the scene. If it's a criminal case, they are able to look at the criminal record of the individual before going to the scene of the crimes. So we do have some concerns about how that could impact an investigator, again, in terms of the tunnel vision and the cognitive bias in expecting to find a certain result before they even get there. That said, NFPA 921 is updated every three to four years. It has taken a long time because it came out in 1991, but it's taken a long time for it to become accepted as a standard. But now that it has, it continues to challenge experts in the field to make sure their investigations are reliable and are consistent with this guidance. Turning point was really 2000 when the DOJ recognized NFPA 921. And now even the Association for Handlers for Canines That Can Detect Fire, even they have come out and acknowledged NFPA 921 and that it's standards that should be abided by. And To be clear, what NFPA 921 does is it establishes some sort of scientific method to collecting the evidence, to preserving the evidence, to examining the scene. One drawback is it does not require the expert to look at the entire fire scene, which, again, if you get the place of origin wrong, that's going to throw off your entire analysis. But it is trying to bring some scientific rigor. Let's switch gears between the civil context, where a number of these challenges have been successful, and the criminal context, where you talk in the article about how NFPA 921 is often ignored. Why? Uh, And I ask this because I can understand how the governing legal doctrine might be different from one context to another, in practice or formally. But I do find it a bit hard to imagine that these investigators would change their methods depending on whether it's a criminal or civil case, right? So you go get a fire investigator, they're going to do some kind of methodology. And if everybody is now switching over, aren't you going to get this kind of rigor in the criminal context as well? 
that would be the hope. In civil cases, your fire investigators are going to be largely employed by insurance companies. They're going to be people who have PhDs, who have a scientific background. While in the criminal context, your fire investigator is going to be the fire marshal, is someone who does not generally have scientific training or background. So there's a real discrepancy there in terms of who is doing the investigating and what their personal background and training is. I think that's the starting point for the differing testimony and difference in whether the standards are followed or not. The second point, which I've come across personally in representing a client of mine, Sam Anstey in West Virginia, what has been really frustrating for me is that Daubert has been adopted by many states and scientific testimony uh, can be challenged and a scientific expert can be challenged through a Daubert hearing and should be. And in our paper, we absolutely encourage public defenders to do that. But states have not necessarily adopted Kumho Tire that extends that to non-scientific evidence or technical evidence. And some states, including my own of West Virginia, have decided that fire science and fire evidence and being a fire expert is non-scientific that it is technical, that there doesn't need to be any type of Daubert hearing. And in fact, a Daubert hearing would be inapplicable to this kind of testimony. I think you'd be hard pressed in a civil case to have a judge who doesn't allow you to challenge the fire science, even in West Virginia, pre-trial. However, in criminal cases, it's simply not even considered. And now we have a high court opinion that says it's not appropriate and that this is simply technical, non-scientific evidence. And under our state law, there is no need for, or I should simply say, it's not appropriate to have a Daubert hearing. So the problem is not really about adopting or not adopting Kumho Tire. It's really about the differing standards that are applied in criminal versus civil cases. So Kumho Tire may effectively be being imposed in these civil cases, but not in criminal cases. And I'm reminded of an earlier article that you wrote where you introduced this rather remarkable Georgia statute. And we talked about this when I had Jen Oliva on the podcast, where Georgia actually explicitly has a very open liberal admissibility policy in criminal cases for scientific evidence and otherwise imposes Daubert in the civil context. Absolutely. In fact, in the Georgia statute, the expert cannot be excluded in a criminal case. While, as you say, in civil cases, there is a Daubert requirement. Yeah. The thing that I like most about the way that your article focuses on fire evidence is that it really puts this Daubert gap, this disparity between civil and criminal cases, in very sharp relief. Because what you have is effectively the same evidence. Ordinarily, forensic evidence is really more geared toward the criminal context, and civil cases have very different expert evidence. But here you have exactly the same evidence being treated differently from the civil to the criminal context, and in ways that I think are rather counterintuitive. You would think that the scrutiny would be much higher in the criminal context. Right, right. And that was our goal with this paper was really to focus on one forensic discipline and examine the difference in admissibility of this evidence in civil versus criminal cases to really drill down with one example of how it differs so substantially between the two. 
The last section of your article is labeled Beyond Daubert, and I think here you move a little bit away from just fighting over Daubert and trying to get it imposed across the board. You suggest a slightly different solution here, which is called linear sequential unmasking. Tell us a little bit more about that and why you think that may be the path forward. Linear sequential unmasking has become more popular and more implemented in forensic labs. And it's where information is only disclosed to the lab analyst as needed. So the lab analyst is given basic evidence to be analyzing and then as needed is told additional information about the case, about where the evidence was found, surrounding information. So the idea for linear sequential unmasking for arson would essentially be that the individual would not be told outside information about the case, but would simply go to the scene and from their own evaluation and analysis and through documenting it. You'll also see that these these analyses are often videotaped. They're recorded in some way so that someone else is able to also evaluate it, which is vital to capture the evidence as soon after the, the fire has finished. So linear sequential unmasking, again, would take out those side possible influences and contain the investigator's findings to what he or she actually sees and determines uh, based on their own experiential and scientific background and looking at the evidence. And it's been really encouraging to see this unfolding in forensic labs. And the hope is that this could also be used in fire science cases. There's actually an experiment being done right now between, we talk about this in our paper, between the Midwest Innocence Project and a fire expert named Paul B to determine how effective it can be when you're limiting this initial information to the fire analyst and you're only allowing fire science experts to see additional information as needed. So their experiment is looking at decisions that have already been made. So someone has already, it's criminal cases, has already been convicted and having in post-conviction fire experts go and reanalyze the evidence. And initially, they just see the scene photos. And then after they see the scene photos, that's when they're told the origin and cause report by the original analyst. And then after that is when they're given the expert witness transcripts. So their project is to see if these forensic auditors find different results and how effective it can be to limit the information through this linear sequential unmasking. Final question for you. What's next? I know this article is a part of a trilogy on various forensic science issues. Are you planning additional articles in this area? Are you planning on doing more work on fire? So Jen and I have worked on these three pieces from the beginning with an idea of a trilogy focused on forensic evidence and the admissibility of forensic evidence in the courtroom and comparing civil and criminal context. So our third piece is going to be about regulating forensic evidence and forensic testimony and whether regulatory boards can use their power to instill greater reliability and testimony by experts who are accountable to that board. Our, our primary example we're thinking about is forensic odontologists who testify in bite mark cases, an area that has been sorely undermined in terms of its lack of reliability, and whether dentistry boards could influence or regulate some of that testimony. So that's our piece to come, our third piece in the trilogy, which we're looking forward to. 
also, I'll say secondarily, I have two cases as part of the, of the West Virginia Innocence Project that are both in federal court, once before the Fourth Circuit and one's in the Southern District of West Virginia, that are both fire science cases. So the, the hope is that maybe we'll be creating some, some good law in this area soon. Well, Valina, thanks for taking the time to talk about fire evidence. Great having you on the show. Oh, it was great to be here. Thank you so much. Let's face it. Fire evidence, much like fire itself, is weird stuff. It's a forensic science, but it doesn't involve identification, so the usual reform recommendations for identification sciences like fingerprints and tool marks don't really fit well. It's more like accident reconstruction, except that the fire itself degrades the evidence involved considerably. This context creates real cause for worry. With very little intact physical evidence available, we're desperate for the fire expert to tell us something. Yet the destroyed evidence means that the fire expert's task is far more difficult to do reliably. Having a great need for potentially unreliable scientific opinion is a dangerous combination. You can't live with it, and you can't live without it. Perhaps this is why I find Valina's discussion of linear sequential unmasking to be so intriguing. If fire evidence is a double-edged sword, then at least we should remove as much cognitive bias from its production as we can. And the basic idea of linear sequential unmasking, isolating the forensic scientist from non-scientific evidence in the case, is something that has always struck me as deeply intuitive. We want our forensic scientists, our fire experts, medical examiners, you name it, to do their scientific or empirical analysis untainted by external considerations. We don't want them to incorporate confessions or eyewitness accounts into their opinions. That's for the jury to figure out. The scientists should just do the science. Policing this practice, though, is a totally different can of worms. I'm not sure Daubert or Kumho can really save the day here. Perhaps a revised NFPA 921 or more robust enforcement by professional organizations might be able to accomplish the goal. For more on that, stay tuned for Valina's next article. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Aaron Parr Carranza, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Excited Utterance.